0: hey thanks thank you so much for inviting me on it's a true honor Um yeah. Yeah. well look I joined when I was seventeen. Um my early years pre
1: going into defence were, were spent um at boarding school for the most part. I'm a bit of a product of the institution. Um did did okay at school, but was pretty keen on joining the ADF um in my later years of, of school, uh and, and was driven to go down that path. Uni just didn't seem like the right fit for me at that stage um and and i'll a bit like at the time you know i I finished school 2008 um the the conflicts in um, iraq and afghanistan were were almost at the height of their uh, operational uh, tempo and you were seeing a lot of um uh media reports about that and i think that maybe influenced me because i i think i wanted to to get involved with that had a had a few delusions of grandeur and I um, uh, thought I'd, I'd uh, chase a, a life in defense. Um, so, yeah, uh, I got out. Uh, sorry, I, I, um, I finished school 20, 2008 and um, joined up uh, in um, at the age of 17, went into the cavalry. Um, uh, I'm not sure why I, I went cavalry. Um, it's a bit of a mystery to me. I think at the stage uh, that I was going through the recruitment process, um, Somebody uh, said the cavalry deploy all the time, almost back to back, and they definitely were um, back in those years. So I think that might have been a bit of a, a driver. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I went into cav, um, loved it. Uh, it's, it's you know any career in defence is a bit of a love hate relationship. You um, you know you, you struggle through. A lot of training, a lot of hard times going bush and 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 training in a pretty um, uh, rough conditions. Um, but it makes you makes you a good soldier, and you um you uh you, you look back on it fondly. So I definitely remember the good times a, a lot more. Maybe the effect of a bit of the rose tinted glasses.
0: Hmm. That's
1: it. Yeah. I I um. I finished my IETs and uh, got told, there was about 20 of us, that um, our options were Brisbane or Darwin and uh, we'd have to paper, scissors, rock, uh, who goes where. And i tell you what, I've, I've never bet so much on, uh, on one round of paper, scissors, rock, and I lost and I spent the next four years in Darwin. Um, yeah,
0: <laughs> it was a pain that filled us all swallow. True. That's
1: it's, also, uh, it's, a, it's a rough training area up at uh, Mount Bundy
0: in the dust and, uh, in the bush. So at that time, um,
1: I was 2CAV B Squadron. Um, we were operating on the ASLAV platform. Um, spent a lot of the time in the early years as a scout. Um, uh, and then sort of went into becoming a driver and heading up that sort of career progression. Um, uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time out Mount Bundy um, and uh, I think it, essentially it must have been just the, the way the operations fell in the tempo at that time that um, there weren't any deployments in the first three years of my career, Um There was, um, we were sending people over to Iraq for sec debt, but I think we were on the the resting rotation um, when I joined uh, and we'd already just had a few uh, of our um, squadrons, I think C squadron come back from uh, deployment.
0: Not really. Look,
1: you know, the only interaction I think we had was going to the RAP. Um, Admittedly, the only sort of medical training I'd had um, prior to my first deployment was the basic first aid training that we uh, received um, at Kapuka. And I'll I'll be honest, I absolutely hated it. I was not a fan. (laughs) Um, I was not good at it, for starters. Um, And I I have it burnt into my memory, you know, the, the whole D is for danger. And you'd recite gloves on. Where's the snake? And I, I'll be—I'll be honest. I thought it was a bit of a joke. And, um, they definitely weren't teaching us care of the battle casualty or um, tailored sort of uh, medical skills for actual war fighting. Um, so, uh, as far as um, medicine goes, I didn't really have any um, skills. Um, we did a bit of pre-deployment for training. Um, uh, in Almatha um, Air Base um, before our insertion, uh, sort of um, the commencement of our deployment. So that that, that comes onto my deployment, which is um, finally in 2013, um, I, I was a part of ATF-2. Um, when I was deploying as a PMV crew commander as part of 2Cav Task Force, um, providing the um, uplift for NATO mentors who were, uh, mentoring the um, Afghan National Army Officers Academy cadets, the sandhurst in the sand, um, in and uh, yeah. Well, when we finally got on that deployment, um, it was a bit of a whirlwind getting into country. Um, uh, definitely went in there bushy eyed, sort of didn't know what to expect. Although, thankfully, I had a few good corporals who had many deployments under their belt. Um, even though I was deploying for the first time, I was, I was still a crew commander and had um, responsibilities. Um, and so I was a, it was a sharp learning curve. Um, but a beautiful country. Um, loved the work, loved working um, with the uh, other NATO forces, particularly the Scotch Dragoon Guard. Um, and uh, a few of our um, mentors were from... New Zealand as well. Um, so we had a good mix, a good crowd. And uh, the work, while a bit uh, non-ness, um, was definitely a thrill uh, as opposed to training out at Mount Bundy. Um, so I loved it. My, my first appointment, I, I kind of got the bug to to um, to go to the Middle East and, and that sort of vibe and that world. Yeah.
0: Mm, yeah, so we, we would cycle through uh,
1: moving the mentors from the, uh, it was known as Camp Karga. Um, there was a NATO base that we would, um, we essentially lived in and slept at. Um, and during the day, we would drive the mentors out to the um, the barracks and the training area for the um, Afghan army officers. Um, uh, we then also cycled between doing uh, road moves from, the Camp Car- from Camp Kaga to um, Kaya, which is uh, the Kabul International Airport. Um, uh, if you, For those of you who are listeners that um, are familiar with uh, Kabul itself, um, you've essentially got uh, the city in a, in a bit of a basin and on the north side you've got the airport and it's got a, a military component on the north or it did back in 2013 um, and a civilian side on the south. Camp Karga was approximately, I'd say, 20 k's um, out um, to the west. Um, And we would do road moves from um, the airport to the camp and and back again. Um, uh, So we would do that. And then we were also cycling through uh, being a a part of the QRF um, team. And we would share that responsibility with the uh, Scottish Dragoon Guards as well. Um, And, and during uh, my deployment, we, um, we did experience a green on blue incident, Um, happened, uh, say on the tail tail end of of the deployment, Um, an incident occurred where a a laptop was found um, by the Afghan army um, uh, training staff and there was this immediate panic that Uh, We didn't know where this laptop came from. Um, It had been essentially picked up by the the contracted cleaners and uh, they tried to smuggle it out. They were caught by the outer perimeter Afghan guards. Um, So uh, that sent off uh, alarm bells. The, um, the, uh, The NATO sort of team we very concerned that it might have crypto or information on it um, that they didn't want to get out. So they essentially um, sent um, uh, a few two New Zealand mentors um, and a, a section of um, of our uh, five RER uh, guys, grunts to to escort them uh, as a bit of a guardian angel force over there and re- recover the um, the laptop. Um, mm-hmm. When they were uh, approaching the the lines, the um, the Afghan uh, cadets' lines, they um, they were engaged by a single uh, male um, who essentially um, took his M16 and just opened a clip uh, at our guys. Um, his motives, I don't think, have ever really been um, uh, established, uh, but. He managed to um, hit one of our New Zealand mentors um, in the leg um, and then was quickly neutralized by our um, our, our five-hour grunts. Um, That was a a big incident. I was on QRF that day, I was sitting waiting. We heard the the rounds pop off and one of the callers ran in and we were quickly, throwing our gear on and getting into the pmvs i don't think i ever racked the uh the Mag 58 faster uh, we quickly gunned it um to the to the front gate and we're ready to roll out and, um go get our guys uh there was a bit of a delay getting out of the base um obviously we were locking down and, and whoever the command and control team were at that time we're trying to establish what was going on um And finally, we did get out. We we moved from our base over to the the lines for the um, officer cadets and um, picked up the uh, New Zealand mentor. Um, At the time, we had an an amazing medic with us. Um, uh, He um, definitely uh, left an influence on me because that day, uh, he essentially sprung to action. He got control of the... um, New Zealand uh, sergeant uh, put a tourniquet on his leg, um, I believe, and then um, it was—it's all a bit of a blur. But we we essentially just picked him all up and we moved back to back to our safety in the um, in the base uh, where he was then stabilized with the nursing officer, Uh, and then shortly after that, um, we had to then move him uh, to the helicopter landing zone where he was being. Medivac, Um so just um definitely led to um a change in our uh operational mindset after that. There was now this fractured relationship with the, the new the um Afghan army. Um prior to that, I think we'd fostered a pretty good working relationship um but then you know doubt had sort of set set into our minds and we um, didn't particularly feel safe working with them. Any mentoring operations were suspended for quite some time. Um, and then uh,
0: um, we slowly returned to our normal operations. Um, yeah. Uh, That's, there was there was rumors going around that he was um, drug affected
1: at the time there was also rumors after the fact that um, the Taliban attended his uh, funeral um I think they were all the, the, the truth behind those rumors is maybe not there um but look on a medical sense i i I felt absolutely unprepared uh to provide care. Um, And, and now being a clinician, I can look back on it and say that, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't have handled that situation very well if I'd been um, the one providing care. Thankfully, we had such an amazing medic with us. um, And I believe that experience later influenced my decision to go into paramedicine. Um, Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, it was um, a pivotal moment, I think in my, in my life and what I wanted to do. That's it. I think, I think he just appeared super calm. Um, uh, you know, he he seemed to just know exactly what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it. And it is, it is, I guess, the perspective of um, the patients we go to now, you know, um, it, on the exterior you, you appear calm, but on the interior you're, um, you you know you've got a thousand thoughts going through your mind and, and it's a bit of a skill to um to uh maintain that
0: composure and on that day he definitely did that um yeah, yeah. that's it I did. I think I, I, I deployed
1: at the age of 21. Um, I got back uh, back to Darwin. During my deployment, I'd been given a, a, um, a posting order and I was to be sent down to uh, Edinburgh. Uh, sadly, I was the only one to, to get that posting and all my mates on that trip were going. Were staying in, in Darwin and then later going to Townsville. Um, I think that change of scenery um and noting the fact that i was you know uh, at that stage 22 um uh i think i was keen to have a change um i wanted to go experience um travel uh, at the you know the first five years of my my career in the army you know you, you were um, subject to what the army wanted to do with you and i think i was i was um jonesing for a bit of autonomy so look I, I got out I got out in 20, uh, 2014 um, went immediately over to Canada um, uh, and did uh, a year at the at Whistler uh, doing the ski bunny life um, I, I bumped into a few ski patrol guys and uh, had a few beers with them and, and they said that they were all paramedics And it just (laughs) was a drive that maybe, hey, look, I could see myself doing ski patrolling. Um, And so I I decided I'd I'd spend my money, my deployment money, on a bit of education, um, invest in myself and and go to South Africa um, where I wanted to complete a um, remote medical technician course. Um, And during that course, um, I was able to... Uh, right along uh, for several weeks, um, doing frontline uh, response, uh, and it was incredible. Um, definitely got the bug then and there. Um, Going to back-to-back stabbings, shootings, um, traumatic arrests—the like of which, like I haven't seen in, in, in my entire career in uh, in Australia. Um, it's,
0: it's a different world. Well, look, as a student, we were given um, Kevlar vests and uh,
1: pepper spray and a taser um, and told, look, if you need to defend yourself, do it. If things go awry, just um, drop your gear and head up into the hills. Um, And once you get to the, because Cape Town's quite an easy place to get to know uh, geographically, just head up into the hills, um, call for, um, for help. Um, but yeah, so this is, Cape Town is, is the, South Africa is the wild west. Um, uh, it's, it's a very dangerous place. It's beautiful, stunning. Um, and the people there are, are very lovely, very, um, direct, I think is how I would put their sort of behavior. Clinically, they're very on point. Um, uh, I don't think you could find a better paramedic in the world, um, outside of um, South Africa just because they are dealing with such crazy um, uh, traumatic work. Um, But the course itself, look, I remember doing um, uh, the first time I pushed chest was on a 14-year-old who'd been stabbed several times in the township. He would then legged it to one of the fire stations and in the course he bled out uh, quite a bit and collapsed at the fire station the uh, fireys worked on him and we arrived and, and um, that was one of the first big jobs I went to and I was, um, uh, yeah, uh, blown away at A the age of the, the,
0: the patient um, as well as like the amount of trauma he'd suffered. yeah and it's it's definitely a skill that you um hone
1: and you have to work on um it comes with time um even now i i still go to jobs uh in my in my um uh, in my day job as a paramedic in canberra um that um have an element of of danger that you're that either if you're the primary and you are tunnel visioned on on treating the patient you don't necessarily see um, and um, so it's not just in, in these crazy parts of the world. You can definitely fall into the trap of, of becoming complacent and um, uh, not identifying dangers uh, here in Australia. But um, yeah, look, uh, the, the experience in Cape Town was incredible. Um, from that course, I was given a, um, a, a qualification that was actually a UK based qualification as an EMT. Um, and as part of that, I had to then go, uh, get employment in London, uh, to get some clinical hours. Um, so I picked up my life. I was a free agent and I, I went over to London, got a, got a job with Falk. Um, at that time they would just acquired a, a small sort of, uh, ambulance company called, um, frontline medical response, um. Uh, and we were doing um, triple zero calls, frontline work, supplementing the London Ambulance Service. Um, we were working out of East London in Allgate, which, again, <laughs> another dodgy part of London, um, has a bit of a reputation. Um, and I guess that was the first time I was, I was getting paid employment as an EMT um, and, and sort of cutting my teeth and, and developing
0: my, my skills. Um Uh, look, maybe because my sister, um,
1: she'd uh, finished uni. She was off traveling, doing some crazy trips abroad. And, and uh, I think I was a bit um, envious and I wanted to have that experience myself. Uh, I wanted to, to to travel, see the world, um, get a bit of uh, a few miles under my belt. Um, and... I think I think the the one of the best things about the military, at least going in and then coming out of the military, and again, this is not everyone's experience but I, I definitely saw the military as a safety net once I got out. I thought you know what i can I can achieve anything I can go and do anything because at the end of the day, I know that the army's there, and they'll take me back if I need to come back and I thought that was a huge um, uh, motivator or um empowerment, uh, a means of empowerment to then go spend the money on, on chasing uh, education and, and travels abroad. So uh, for the, for the um, listeners that are thinking about getting into defence or, or getting out of defence and are a bit um, concerned or apprehensive about what their life is going to be like after defence, um, I, I think of it as a motivator. You can go to uni and, and try and study that hard degree because at the end of the day, you know, um, if, you, you, if you're able to get back in, that you, you know, you can go back to that life. Um, so I, I definitely tried to use it as a, as a, a, a motivator or a crux. Uh, but while I was in London, uh, I was having a great time. I uh, definitely didn't want to stop at EMT. I was keen to get up and, and study paramedicine. I actually approached uh, Greenwich University to study a, uh, to become a paramedic and, and register with um, HCPC. Uh, but before I could do that, I was going through the, um, the career process. I, before I could get accepted and start that, I was approached by um, a mate who um, suggested I apply for a job back in Afghanistan. Um, I, I loved my deployment and, and was definitely keen to go back. Um, so, uh, I applied and I, I managed to get a gig as a close protection officer um, at the Australian Embassy, um, uh, essentially looking after the diplomats back in Kabul, the, the city that I knew. Um, and, um, I was immensely lucky, lucky to get that job and I ended up staying in Kabul for the next four years um, working
0: as a as a security slash medic for um, the embassy. The- yeah, look <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I finished up
1: in, in London um, in 2017, took on the contract, went over to the embassy. Um, the, the early years, I think it was pretty stock standard. Um, um, the sort of wind down didn't happen till 2021, 2022. Um, so for those early years, um, you know, it was... I Essentially, started off as the static, as a static security guard commander, managing a, a workforce of Afghan guards and, and Nepali guards, um, yeah. and uh, I was training them in first aid. Um, essentially, facilitating the daily life of the um, the diplomats from DFAT. Um, the uh, like life there was good. I loved it. It was a, a two month. Uh, two months in country and then one month out of country. Um, we did have a few medical emergencies um, that I was called on for. Um, we would have just the, the basic non-traumatic medical emergencies. Um, I remember one of our Afghan contractors working on a roof and you can imagine that they... Um, they weren't exactly abiding by the safety at heights guidelines that Australia has. And this, this poor Afghan um, contractor, he uh, he slipped to an, and fallen in about three floors and um, ended up getting a femur fracture. Um, so it was cool to him. We kind of uh, stabilised him, did a basic um, traction splint. And because he wasn't uh, an Australian um, or a diplomat he um he was pretty much thrown into a a taxi uh, and taken to the local afghan hospital uh, and then yeah. from there uh, his care was taken uh, taken over by the the local health system um but in addition to that we did have a few emergencies with our australian staff um we had uh, one of our facilities managers um have a bit of a medical emergency he uh he Previously had a AAA. Um, he uh, was very, very lucky that his previous AAA was only a, a mild leak and uh, he'd been patched up um, at another embassy in, in Africa, in Nairobi. Um, recovered and then he managed to get uh, onto the contract in, in Kabul. Um, one day he was down at the gym working out um, when he, he essentially had a syncope um, had uh, um, essentially the same symptoms that he experienced in his previous AAA. So from there, um, we had to facilitate his move um, out of out of the embassy to uh, the airport, and then his evacuation. Um, it, it definitely put me under the pump because um, you know we we didn't have access to any imaging. We we essentially had to make a gut call and. And um, he was very much um, apprehensive about leaving and, and and going to seek further medical care um, because he knew that if um, if it was nothing, um, he would maybe have questions about his uh, his career and his posting. So he didn't really want to go. Um, but not having X-ray vision, um, based off the information I had, I kind of had to um, send him off. And at one point, we literally, you know um throwing in the AED with him and I was I was um very much concerned that he was having a, a leaky triple A. Um mm-hmm. and uh uh he was quite biatheric. I said that to him
0: and he was like
1: <laughs> Yeah,
0: look <at> I <laughs> he knew more than enough um, and he
1: was very much like oh no nah, it's alright, I was just working out too hard and and I'm <laughs> like, No, you can't take that risk. So, um, uh, but he, he was very good. Unfortunately, uh, he never returned to the contract. Um, he did have um, uh, some dilation. Um, there was no leak, but um, it's, it's very lucky we got him out. And uh, uh, um, it, it taught me a, a, a few lessons about what I would have to do and what our actual the reality of our medical response was going to be. In country, which um, helped me later on down the line because we did have a few hairy moments. Um, one particular one um, was a, a massive uh, truck bomb. Um, there was a septic truck um, full to the hilt with uh, explosives, um, and that truck drove into Kabul on the 31st of May um, 2017, um, somehow got through the outer perimeters. Um, and drove right up to the T-wall of the green zone. Um, I think it was around about 8.30 in the morning um, at the peak hour of traffic um, and it essentially detonated right next to the um, T-wall where the German embassy was. Um, To give a bit of context, uh, that truck bomb um, took out about 150 Afghans, uh, wounded another um, 400 plus. Um, and, and if you think about um, those numbers and try and put all those people in one city block, you can kind of picture how busy that area was when it went off. Um, blew in the T wall. I think it's um, it injured a few of uh, the German embassy staff. Um, for us, we were approximately 800 meters away uh and the shockwave hit us I, I remember sitting in the um the essentially the, the point of contact control center um and uh, getting hit with the shockwave and all the the tiles of the false ceiling fell in um a few of our diplomats got blown over they were um, caught in sort of doorways or or hallways where there was a pressure gradient and they were blown over um um and then we went into sort of lockdown mode. Um, uh, several minutes later, we were expecting um, potential casualties to rock up at our checkpoints, um, and we did. We had uh, a, a two Australian journalists or reporters um, passport holders that rocked up at our checkpoint uh, having had received concussion and, and shrapnel injuries. Um, i was I was asked to attend to them um, couldn't really do much um for their their hearing they'd um had some um uh, sensitivity to their um eardrum and a few uh minor shrapnel injuries but I think uh the shock itself uh was more of a an injury and they were feeling very um thankful that they were alive um and uh, pretty shaken, and, and many of our diplomats after that incident um, returned to Australia to never come back. Um, so uh, yeah, we patched them up, gave them a bit of advice, um, sent them on their way as they they weren't uh, immediately um, unwell, and we had other priorities being the security matters that were were taking um,
0: that were taking place. Um, but, yep definitely, um yeah look it it definitely um
1: was a consideration wanted to to go out there and help. Um, I think, uh, in that circumstance, I was very much, um, uh, I was wearing two hats, um, being the medic, but also being responsible for security of one of the, the residences. So I, I couldn't abandon, um, the, the immediate need, which essentially was what I was there for, which was looking after the diplomats. Um, we did experience a, a slow flow of, um, uh, injured people or people that had um, minor shrapnel burn, uh, injuries uh, present to the, to our um, through one of our one or two of our three checkpoints. Um, essentially, the guys that we were working with had all received some level of first aid training um, and were providing whatever care they could. But if they weren't an Australian um, passport holder, we were very much limited to what we could do with them. Uh, that being, we weren't able to bring them into the facility or provide shelter or care. We essentially had to patch them up um, and then send them uh, onto the the health facility, either um, being the, the local um, health facility or to um, the airport, um, the military side. Roll, uh, roll uh, one, roll, role three. Sorry. Um, so yeah, like that was that was a, a massive. Massive truck blast and huge incident. Um, Pieces of that truck were found at our embassy as well as a few other facilities uh, because it was just just been dispersed all over the city. Um, And the crater, I think I've got a photo of it, is at least you know um, ten meters deep. Um, It was just incredible how much power was involved in that. So, um, later on, um, at the tail end of my time in in Kabul at the embassy, um, I uh, was finishing up my degree. Um, I was keen to come back to Australia and and get employment as a paramedic with one of the state services. So, um, in 2020, uh, I managed to secure... um, um, Employment with the ACT Ambulance Service. Um, and that essentially meant that I had to had to leave the embassy uh, to go do that full-time. I very much had the intent to leave, go finish my grad program, um, uh, get some time on road, but also to come back to, to Kabul um, to return to the embassy because it was such a good life. Um, I loved my mates there. I loved the, the job and... Um, uh, I didn't want to give that up. But unfortunately, uh, COVID hit to start. Um, So uh, I was a grad on road with the ACT ambulance while um, the pandemic was breaking out. I think it was quite fortuitous that I left when I did um, because a lot of my mates that were at the embassy got caught there um, as the international uh, borders and lockdowns started taking taking effect. Um, they were just unable to fly out, including the diplomats um, in, the, in the early months. Um, so uh, I, I have a few mates that were stuck in country for several weeks, um, correction, several months um, before they were able to get any relief. Um, meanwhile, from my perspective, I, I started as a grad with the ACT Ambulance Service and was um, <laughs> enjoyed maybe two weeks on road where there was a, a lower tempo of calls and jobs coming through before it quickly escalated and we were dealing with uh, the usual um, usual caseload. I guess it wasn't until 2021 when we started to see the actual waves of COVID um, propagate through uh, the community um, and um, convert, uh, at the same time um, we saw all the events taking place in Kabul um, because I hadn't been there in twenty, in, in the year of 2020, um, I wasn't present to, to watch the embassy sort of downsize, um, mothball their their um, diplomatic um, missions and sort of reduce their footprint. Um, the Australian embassy shut um, prior to the um, uh, prior to the 2021 um, collapse. Of the Afghan government, um, so from my perspective, back in Australia, it was a, it was a tough time um, watching um, the events take place on the news in Kabul. Um, very much felt um, uh, conflicting emotions about uh, what was going on there. Um, definitely a bit of um, anger, a bit of. Um, uh, sadness for the the people um and um kind of just was wishing that it hadn't gone down the way it did and that i was still over there but um i think like many afghan vets it was something we had to kind of uh wrestle with and expect um i think for many uh they didn't really see how how the conflict was going to end i don't think we thought it was going to end in such a terrible
0: manner um, but uh, sadly, it did. I think in total, I spent about
1: five years in and out of the country. Um, so at that time I'd made um, friends with afghan contractors and guards uh and you know they were uh, i'd say a a large portion over the last two two three years have been um uh, well sorry since the collapse have been relocated to australia but during the initial months i remember getting messages on facebook from people that were stuck there that were mates and um trying to to pass on their information to DFAT to try and help them because it was just, it was absolute chaos. Um, um, and um, these people were fighting for their lives. They were definitely a target um, for having worked with the the, um, the Europeans, the NATO forces. Um
0: mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having spoken
1: to my mates who were over there, I think that it's a common thread of people just being quite um, uh, depressed or, or um, uh, conflicted about what happened, considering how many years we were in there or how many mates that have lost their their life, literal um, blood spent trying to establish a a democracy and uh, a functioning state, uh, nation, so they will just disappear and evaporate in the um, in the space
0: of a few days, a few weeks. um, hmm. um. So yeah,
1: since then I've I've been working with the ACT Ambulance Service. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a paramedic. I'm, a, I'm also a sessional lecturer at um, ACU. Um, and um, I, I think after a while I started to get itchy feet. I'm, I'm definitely someone who likes um, to travel and, and likes a bit of adventure and a change of scenery. Um, in 2022 um i started to see the events unfolding in ukraine um and um i guess that invoked a few other emotions similar to to what happened in afghan i was i was keen to to help out um i i think most most people would agree that it was pretty shocking to see on the um on the news the events of, of the russian troops uh invasion um and so uh having you know medical capabilities and um uh not having any any children or any immediate um ties to to not to prevent me going over there i sat down with my my partner and we discussed potentially doing uh well for me to do a a deployment to ukraine and um, provide medical assistance um i definitely uh was keen to get in there as a humanitarian um, and, and separate myself from the fighting and just focus on the healthcare. Um, my days of carrying, um, carrying a, a, a long gun are, are over and I definitely see my life now as a, as a clinician. Um, and I wanted to go over there and, and um, help out, essentially. So ooh, I started looking for NGOs that would take me on um, and uh, my partner, because in the early early months, it was very much touch and go, and we were thought, thinking, is this the next big conflict? Um, should we sit on it? And so I waited about four months um, before I was successful in getting um, a position with an NGO called FrontlineMedics.org. Um, they were a small um, NGO that was... Um, in its infancy, um, I collected a whole heap of resources here in in Canberra, and, and essentially jumped on a plane and flew over to Poland, where I um, inserted into uh, into Ukraine um, via uh, the border, um, not far from Lviv, um, moved into uh, Dnipro, where the Headquarters was set up and we then from there started um doing medical evacuation. Um the NGO uh, had um, three main responsibilities that they were running, um being uh, a pop-up clinic uh in the liberated areas, medical evacuation, uh and then healthcare at one of the sort of um displaced, internally displaced refugee camps. Um, and um, uh, as far as conflicts go, I think I saw more trauma in the six weeks of my deployment uh, in in Ukraine than I had in my entire career um, Being between being a soldier and a, and a medic in, um, in Canberra. Um, the just sheer quantity of, of patients coming through was incredible. Um, and uh, we were able to operate within about... 15 to 20 kilometres of the front line, um, essentially receiving the influx of, of uh, refugees uh, fleeing westward, and we would receive them, start providing assistance and then facilitating their evacuation to the refugee processing centres. yeah that's it so we, we our primary focus was on the civilian population um we uh mostly in the early weeks we're operating around the town of kupyansk um which is essentially a, a town based on a, a water feature a river that runs north to south um the uh ukrainians had had quite um, a successful counteroffensive as they were pushing the, the russians out and the as the Russians were escaping, they were blowing all the bridges on that river. Um, at Kupyansk, they'd um, they'd blown the bridge, um, but they hadn't blown the pedestrian footpath. Um, so um, while vehicles couldn't cross over, the refugees could come to that bridge, walk over, and then be received by all the um, humanitarian NGOs. So we were seeing um, women, children, the old babushkas that were um, uh, in mobile, being carried out, or um, in wheelchairs. Um, and we were essentially dealing with a, a mix of, of trauma but also un, um, untreated um, medical conditions that um, these people had essentially been under occupation for several months. Um, they hadn't had any access to healthcare. Um, prior to that, um Prior to the invasion, they had limited access to healthcare, but they still could get medications and see a doctor. After the invasion, they had pretty much none. Any um, any clinicians, doctors, um, anybody with resources and capability that could flee um, Westwood in the early days had done so, and so only the um, the uh, low socioeconomic elderly or infirmed. Um, we're essentially stuck there uh, until we receive them. So we we had a ton of people coming through. Um, you can picture the uh, the third world kind of infections and wounds that we were experiencing. Um, some some of them had just festering festering wounds that had um, been managed at home with maybe a bit of a bit of paper towel and a few makeshift bandages. Um, we did have one um, one lady present to us that had been uh, cut up by a piece of shrapnel and she would managed to approach the Russians um, and one Russian had stitched her up. Um, this laceration uh, on her leg was about 10 centimet- centimetres long and I think she got about four sutures. Um, so you can imagine the train tracks that were, uh, that were coming for her. Um, Funnily enough, the, um, the Russian soldier that, or medic that had stitched her up had taken the finger of a glove, um, a latex glove, cut the tip off it, cut it off the, the palm and inserted the, the tube-like finger as a bit of a makeshift drain. Um, I believe the intent there was to provide drainage and then take that out and have some follow-on care, but she never received any follow-on care. So by the time we received her, it had been in there for about six weeks. And it uh, it turned into this um, um, festering infection. Um, but a few other a few other crazy moments on the on the deployment um, at the at the bridge. Uh, I remember at one point we were sitting there um, sort of late in the evening, expecting more civilians to come in, um, when we could see um, airburst shelling. In the sky over the town, uh, about five to ten kilometers away um, to the east, and at that point, I think that's that's when I realised, oh shit, we are way too close. Um, either the the front line, which is is an ambiguous term in itself, um, had changed, or we had now um, we had now gotten uh, yeah t- too close to to what we were comfortable to do. Um, so uh, we quickly <laughs> jumped in the ambulance, moved uh, a bit further away and then started drawing up medication, expecting um, an influx of, of patients. Um, the airbursts were all in sindry, um and you could see it falling on the town from the, the higher um, elevation of, of the um, West Bank uh, Unfortunately, only um, a small handful of, uh, uh, thankfully only a small handful of patients presented over the bridge after that shelling. Um, none of them had any major injuries. I think there was one that had a bit of burns on their on their lower legs. Um, uh, but um, for the most part, when the um, shelling came in, the civilian population had sought shelter in their bunkers. Um, or, a lot of the um, a lot of the houses in in eastern Ukraine still have um, basements, um, which they were using for shelter. Um, but the the medications that we'd drawn up in haste, expecting a, a mass casualty influx, uh, ended up not really being utilised. And that was an important learning point for me uh, from a remote medicine kind of standpoint. That. Um, uh, you do have to be conscious of the resources that you have and you can't draw things up or use them uh, based on assumptions. Um, uh, that evening, after those patients came through, we, we stopped by at the um, Kupiansk Hospital, picked up a, a few civilians. Um, when I say a few, we packed 11 women and children uh, into a, into the ambulance, an old Welsh ambulance um, green and yellow box ambulance um, and headed off uh, back to uh, the refugee processing centre. And that night, that same hospital um, was shelled um, to the point that uh, it would never reopen. Um, a few nurses lost their, their life, uh, but we were very lucky that we got out the, um, the civilians and the, the children that we um, we had um, so it was a further reinforcement that what we were doing um, was having a, a,
0: a very positive effect for those that we were influencing. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's it's um,
1: I guess the the smaller NGOs, um, depending on on who you go with, they they vary in the level of organisation that they have, um, and it is very dependent on the funding that they have. Um, for from at that time, they didn't have a large footprint. Um, I think the organisation itself maybe had a, a workforce of a dozen medics, nurses, and doctors. Um. And so we, yeah, we're just rolling around in a donated Welsh ambulance, um, still with the, the Welsh language um, signs inside. Um, and uh, we um, would essentially pick up our medication um, from our Ukrainian doctor, um, Dr Alina, who um, was an anesthetist, and through her because she was our medical director, we derived our sort of authority. We would throw a whole heap of these medications in um, and uh, whatever medical supplies we could scrounge from um, the donations that were finally reaching the Eastern Front. You remember, like, um, a ton of donations were coming in from governments but as well as non-government entities. Um, They were all flowing into Lviv and, and... um kiev uh but to a point they would be stockpiled in the west um especially in the early days because there was the assumption that we don't know where this conflict's going to go we might need it so they'd stockpile so very little um would actually reach the the eastern side of the country where we would get hold of it um so we we were definitely in a resource poor environment um Security and and sort of intelligence, it was all just coming from open source uh, intel. Um, We uh, would collaborate with some of the larger NGOs, um, MSF and Red Cross, um, and we would receive um, uh, information packets from them, but as well as just um, sharing of information on chat groups of of regions that were safe or, um, um, or there was a need. Uh, at certain areas um, and so uh, as for safety it's all pretty much dependent on on um, on the a the few bits of body armor and helmet and kevlar helmets that you could get hold of um, but also um, the information and the, the risk tolerance that you were willing to accept uh, so we tried to implement a bit of a a risk assessment um, process and, and mission planning process um but uh in a in a in the fog of war and um, in the uh confusion it was really hard to tell where the front line had maybe moved to in the in the days um so uh yeah look it was it was a bit of a crazy um gray environment to operate in uh we would go to the hospitals the, the civilian and military hospitals take them supplies and then if they needed to transport civilians backwards to the um the facilities further westward we would then facilitate that um, and uh, you know at some points we were we were taking um, yeah uh, upwards of six to eight patients walking wounded and see um, laying wounded um, just to get them
0: out of out of the front line where they were just swamped with with patients Hmm. yeah look uh, that's it and
1: as a as a former defense member um i i'm and contractor, I, I'm used to an environment where there's a lot of planning, rigidity, um, funding, and
0: high um, yeah. a, a, a hierarchy.
1: Yeah, uh, in this scenario, there was nothing. There was um, It was very much uh, a volunteer workforce doing what they were comfortable to do. Um, I guess what made frontlinemedics.org different was that we had um, just clinicians. Um, and so it was very useful when we'd have a clinician come in that was ex-defence that could kind of read, um, read the room and, and add that level of planning, mission planning, um, that you don't necessarily get taught as a base paramedic or a nurse um, in, a, in a civilian health facility. Um, so... Um, we definitely also got into this routine of, um, in addition to planning, when you get out to the front, you would read the, the vibe of the civilians and the soldiers and be like, okay, and the tempo of artillery in the background. Like if you, you get there and it's, everything's up, everyone's a bit anxious, there's a higher tempo, you could feel that. It was very palpable and you'd have to decide, okay, well, I'm not sure where are um, having the best day and maybe we should fall back to a, a safer distance and, and find um meaningful work uh
0: in a safer environment. Yeah uh Google Translate gets you to a point. Um we learn a few
1: phrases. Um we did I, I definitely found that the um Clinicians, like the Ukrainian doctors, had a quite high level of uh, English. Um, And uh, most of the young as well had some level of of English that they could communicate with us, Um, more than I had Ukrainian, that's for sure. Uh, It was your older population, your older demographic, that didn't really have any um so in those circumstances when we were doing the pop-up clinic and we have an influx of patients we would have to you know get through you'd have to pantomime what they're feeling we'd learn a few phrases for symptoms for example pain um uh is bullet in in um, ukrainian so you could point and say bullet is that painful um you could pantomime vomiting like if you're Things um things like that. And, You did essentially have to rely a lot on your um, your visual signs uh, as opposed to reported symptoms. Um, But look, in the tail end of my deployment, we were also assisting moving patients from (laughs) from uh, Dnipro and Kharkiv to the uh, the larger cities of of, uh, sorry Dnipro and um, Kharkiv to Lviv and Kiev. and I remember, I remember we got asked to transport this lovely lady um, from Kharkiv uh, to um, Lviv, and she had um, quite advanced dementia, although that wasn't exactly communicated to us. So we we went to the train station. Um, the trains were essentially a major um, thoroughfare and uh, evacuation route uh, means of transport for the civilians so we got there she had been um, essentially carried by her family onto the train um, then trained to Kharkiv we received her at the train station and they said well look we can't we can't manage her on the train Um, she's got toileting needs Um, um, she can't walk she's there's nowhere to lay on the train can you Um, can you take her? And so we were more than happy to do that. Um, not speaking Ukrainian, we couldn't really establish what her, uh, mental aptitude was and how orientated she was. She was absolutely lovely talking with us uh, while we were with her family. Um, but eventually they had to get back on the train to go. Um, and we had to step off, um, for the, for the 12 hour drive that we were about to do, um. So once we had her in the back of the ambulance, she um, she very quickly forgot what was going on and what had been said to her, and started essentially um, <laughs> going, "Who?" I, I believe not speaking Ukrainian, saying, "Who are you? What's going on? Where am I? Who are you, crazy people, looking after me?" And we it was just myself and a Norwegian um, between the two of us. I think we spoke maybe a dozen Ukrainian phrases. Um, that was not enough <laughs> so um, we headed off and and um, it was just a comedy of errors of her <laughs> shouting at us and and um, um, like at one point um, we tr- through broken um, mm-hmm. Google Translate established she needed to go to the toilet and so um, we stopped uh, at a service station and <laughs> Um, we, the two of us had to carry her into the service station. Um, and this this bemused and quite confused attendant was going, like, what the heck is going on here? Who are you? What is happening? And <laughs> the uh, Ukrainian um, babushka, she was apparently shouting to the attendant that we're two crazy Westerners trying to kidnap her. Um And so we we got on the phone. We called up our Dr. Alina, who was a um, Ukrainian. We put her on the phone um, speaker and she started doing live translate for us, which was a bit of a godsend. Um, It kind of didn't really help the situation because as soon as we would finished toileting her, she didn't actually have to go in the end. Um, But once we finished that, we we got on the road and uh, I think she promptly forgot everything as well. Um, That was a long 12-hour
0: drive, um, and it was just absolutely crazy. Uh, But that's the – yeah, look – And what, these,
1: these conditions don't stop just because there's a war on, um, you know, health conditions are going to just um, continue on within the population. So, uh, yeah, that family, um, you know, they, kudos to them that they had put such an amazing effort in trying to get her out of there.
0: Um, uh, yeah, uh, um, it was incredible. yeah
1: um it was a look it was a incredible experience um i i took a lot away from it from a, a clinical point of view i think um selfishly i did go there to to see what the health system was like under those those circumstances and see the clinicians working in that environment so i could in addition to wanting to help out experience that life um um, and, and uh, I'm very thankful to having having been able to go, having such a lovely partner that um, was in, um, supportive of me going over. Um, I, I have no intentions of going back, sadly. I think my partner deserves me here for now. Um, I do can t- still work with um, frontline medics. I do um, some administrative work for them. Um, but uh, at this stage, I'm just... Continuing my work as a paramedic and, and studying and teaching. Um,
0: hmm. so it's a yeah, it's a very broad question, but
1: I I think they're they've come. Um, leaps and bounds in in, from a military perspective they have um, developed into this sort of 21st century uh, military organization they have health um, structures in place for their soldiers that are quite effective they're getting a lot of assistance um, from the west Um, i'm not entirely certain that that's being then passed on to the civilian population, although the fronts are a lot more static. Um, there haven't been huge shifts. I think the last huge shift has been since the the um, withdrawal of the Russians in Kherson. Um, the the country, I guess, it still needs um, basic medical supplies um, and ultimately funding and, and expertise training for their... Um, their their clinicians and their specialists um the civilian population um thankfully have been able to evacuate themselves from the fighting uh and get inwards but there is a huge population of internally displaced people um some are still uh, residing at refugee centers um you know in in the basement of shopping centers or in the metro systems um from a healthcare perspective, uh, it's it's a it's such a diverse need um, of of clinical resources as well as people. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I could sum it up with just oh this is the one item we need. I guess if you had to do that, you'd say diesel. Um, everything runs on diesel or, or petrol, and um, particularly from a, a pre-hospital ambulance sort of perspective. You can't do any operations without petrol and and essentially uh, that is just money,
0: donations. Um, Yeah. Thank you
1: so much, Emma, for having me on. It's, a, it's, an, it's an absolute honor to be able to speak to your audience. Um, it, it's a, an amazing world that we operate in, and the people that live in this sort of austere uh, environment, uh, medical world, are some of the best out there. So, thank you. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, it's been a
0: pleasure. Oh, really I think that's that's pretty that was a pretty
1: good vibe um did you did you enjoy that did that I hope I didn't stumble on my words too much
0: I do seem to an R a lot